Hello and welcome back, friend and trusted companion on this ongoing journey through the most noteworthy new music releases of the 1980s. Here on The Big Show, we have a veritable clash of the titans for October of 1983. Meanwhile, as is my custom, we've got the B-sides, the best of the rest show, the battle of the bottom feeders. What were the dregs of the heavy metal community up to in October of 1983? Dylan goes 80s and uh, Eddie Money, Survivor, all kinds of stuff. And remember, the best of the rest of 1983 October is just the tip of the iceberg of what awaits you at my Patreon. And you can get a free one-week trial sample all the audio delights that await you at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Tully, Tully, Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, Coming to you live on tape from a semi-subterranean podcast bunker in rapidly gentrifying and rapidly flooding Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign that is assuming it has not slid down the hill since last I peeked at it. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. If the electricity holds out, I couldn't possibly be more excited about the batch of old new music I am back to talk to you folks all about. So I've been threatening for a while to get caught up on these old new music shows, and it's it's happening. I hereby commit to doing a, a, a new releases from 83 show, one per week, uh, until... We are current and locked into the month we're supposed to be in. Just a a big change that is merely a prelude to a much bigger change, uh, a bigger set of changes that are coming to the Tully show. I am not at liberty to share the exact nature of those changes, uh, owing largely to the fact that I'm not 100% sure what they are. But for now, we're ramping up to something. And I'm pretty sure that and the way that we're ramping up to it is by doing one of these shows every single week. And we find ourselves this time around in October of 83. And what a month that was. Talked about it so many times. It's the fourth quarter. The The labels are bringing it established artists who they know can move units. They, they put pressure on these people, sometimes financially incentivize them to release an album so that kids can ask for it for Christmas, receive it under the Christmas tree. Although this time around, at least a couple of the big albums we're going to be talking about were uh, were debut albums, at least solo debut albums. So obviously um, artists who had not yet established themselves, but in whom the labels had all sorts of faith that they were going to be able to move units. And at least in a couple of those cases, the labels were extremely correct. So here's the deal, folks. There are five albums at least I, I i could really use a fact checker here i'm my own fact checker and my wife will tell you that i'm the wrong man for the job there are it, at least five triple platinum albums released in october 
1983. And when I say triple platinum, I mean U.S. sales alone. In many cases, these albums sold more than twice as many copies worldwide. But just restricting ourselves to, I mean, how many people lived in the U.S. in 1983. The number was most definitely under 250 million, probably closer to 200 million. Once again, if anybody wants to volunteer to be my real-time fact checker, I am accepting applications for sure. Let's just say it was 200 million people. Five albums came out in one month that sold 3 million copies to 200 million people. That's that's more than 1% of the population bought every one of these albums. Am I doing this wrong? Am I really that bad at, at, at arithmetic? I think that's true. Five blockbuster albums. And yet, I feel I would be totally remiss if I did not begin the show by talking about it. How many copies, how many albums did this one sell? This is something I definitely should have looked into. It had to at least be platinum. I am speaking of the fourth solo album, from Paul McCartney. The album is called Pipes of Peace. It would ultimately sell a relatively piddly 1 million copies. The reason why I feel compelled to lead the show with it is because Paul McCartney either wrote or co-wrote 32 number one songs. And in October of 1983, he co-wrote, co-sung, and co-released his final Number one, it was it was actually the first collaboration that he had recorded along with Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson's involvement probably had a lot to do with the success of the song, obviously. It was the first song they recorded together. It was the second one that was released. I'm speaking of Say, 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 you may recall. Say, say. You may recall the music video for this. I don't even, did they make a music video for The Girl Is Mine? They, they must have. I don't recall it, but uh, they're 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 a pair of uh, rascally traveling snake oil salesmen. Anyway, there's a bunch of interesting trivia around the, the two collaborations between the two artists. Paul McCartney says one day he gets a phone call. He assumes it's a, it's a young girl who's a fan who's somehow gotten his phone number and he's going to have to go crack some skulls with his security team. Needless to say, the young girl on the other end of the line ends up being Michael Jackson, who says, Paul, do you want to make some hit songs together? And so they they get in the studio and this uh, their collaboration, for one thing, sows further dissension between Michael Jackson and his producer, Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones had always kind of ruled the studio as his own private fiefdom and bossed Michael Jackson around. And this is like the first time Michael Jackson's been in a studio as a solo artist without Quincy Jones telling him what to do. And he finds that he's able to make creative decisions just fine all by himself and he has just as much success as he does with Quincy Jones and I think they would record one more album together after this and then Michael Jackson would move on to to try to show the world that he never needed Quincy Jones felt like Quincy Jones got too much credit for uh, their their mutual success 
Of course, there's the famous story that they're Paul and Linda McCartney and Michael Jackson are having dinner together during the recording sessions for these two songs. And Paul goes, you know, the real money is in owning um, other artists catalogs. Look at how much money I make from owning the, the Buddy Holly catalog. But the thing is, Buddy Holly is dead. Michael Jackson's like, oh, that's a great idea. Legend has it he even tells Paul McCartney to his face. Someday I'm going to own all of your music, Michael Jackson, a man who in many, many ways not famous for uh, reading the room very well or understanding the social cues that the most of that most of the rest of us would have picked up on. He does buy the Beatles catalog. He does make tons of money off of that. And uh, that did not make Paul McCartney very happy. That was sort of the end of their friendship. But I think when people so Paul McCartney has already collaborated with uh, he's trying to hang on. He wants to be a perennial hit maker. The, the, the hits are not coming as readily, as easily as they did, obviously, with the Beatles even in the early day as they did with the early days of wings. So he collaborates with Stevie wonder and they make ebony and ivory and it's a big hit. So he's looking around going, who else can I collaborate with? And boom, the biggest, the new Beatles, Michael Jackson comes to him and asks if he wants to collaborate. I think when people remember, uh, their collaboration, the song that comes to mind is the girl is mine, which I think to neither of these songs are amazing, but I think that one is clearly the lesser of the two. Very often, this is the knock on collaborations. The two artists want to come together and bring their, their flavors, their sticks together. And they end up sort of doing like almost a, a, a cartoonish self parody of their own sound. And I think that would apply to the very, very schmaltzy, the girl is mine. Now say, 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 not a great song, but to me, it's much more faithful to what's actually good about these artists. I think the um, the the bridge is a pretty decent, uh, I'm sorry, the pre-chorus is a pretty decent Michael Jackson bridge of the era, the say, say, say bit that McCartney sings. It's not the greatest, but it's most definitely, it's that's Paul McCartney. You'd know that sound anywhere. I find actually the two of them, it's, it's funny, Paul McCartney in 83 plus Michael Jackson in 83 somehow and ends up sounding like something that Stevie Wonder would have been making in this era, including some, some harmonica that's on the track. But when I think of this song, I do think of it somewhat fondly just because it's I think it's largely been forgotten and it's not it's not terrible. I don't really think of the hook so much as I think of the bridge. It only happens one time in the song. But to me, this is good McCartney and it is good Michael Jackson and it, and they put themselves in a situation where it was a piece of music that for just a brief little moment of time really did make sense for both of them on their own terms. Perhaps you remember, perhaps you don't hear is that little bit. So as I said at the start, five triple platinum albums, bare minimum, were released in October of 83. We will go through them in ascending order of U.S. sales, beginning with Pink Houses, which was the first album that John Mellencamp released under the name John Mellencamp. He had been, when he initially signed his deal... Uh, against his wishes, he had been billed as Johnny Cougar, and in, in his attempt to transition out of that, in classic Dwayne the Rock Johnson style, he went from being Johnny Cougar to being John Cougar Mellencamp, which is the name probably many of us still remember him best as. 
And by 83, he's just John Mellencamp, and he releases, I believe it's his seventh studio album. Sort of interesting, Mellencamp typically wrote all of his own music, even if it was fairly shamelessly derivative a lot of the time. This time around, he was um, unusually collaborative and in unusual ways. One of the songs on the album he co-wrote with uh, John Prine, who's an established artist. There's nothing unusual about that. But there's another song where Mellencamp's guitar player is listening to an album, like a relatively unsuccessful album his the guitar player's friend's band made. And, and John Mellencamp is like, I can use that. And they reach out to the band and he takes a piece of one of their songs and gives the guy a little slice of the songwriting pie. There's another song. John Mellencamp's hairdresser wrote and he was like, hey, John, as long as I'm trimming your sideburns here, you want to check out this thing that I wrote and and Mellencamp did it and he put it on the album. Um, and then there's the um, let's call it the unconscious borrowing at best. There's a song on the album that many people noted sounded a whole hell of a lot like the Van Morrison song Gloria. This album had at least three singles, one of which is the Authority song, which many, many people, myself included, um, uh, noticed had a, a a glaring similarity to the I, I Fought the Law and the Law One, originally written by Son, Sonny Curtis of the Crickets. Okay, I did not know that, popularized by Bobby Fuller and then The Clash and a bunch of other people. But it was uh, another one of the, of, of the Mellencamp self-penned tracks that was probably the most memorable song from the album. Uh-huh. And uh, here it is. I can remember when you could stop a cloud Oh, but ain't that America For you and me Ain't that America Something to see, baby Ain't that America Home of the free, yeah Little pink houses Ain't that America? Uh, I was kind of shocked to learn that the uh, the self-titled album from Genesis, released in October of 83, outsold Mellencamp in the U.S. alone, just barely, though, uh, at 4 million copies sold domestically. Kind of surprising, although the band did have an existing fan base to, to draw on for sales because it was really only one standout crossover single. So we find Genesis at a really, really interesting point here. You know, there's just there's two different genesises. There's the Peter Gabriel genesis, which is very progressive and not pop in the slightest and frankly, kind of kind of hard to listen to to the uninitiated to, to modern ears, at least my modern ears. And then he leaves and they're high and dry and they got to make an album. So Phil Collins fills in for for vocals for an album and it works and they move forward. And as uh, Phil Collins talks about in his excellent memoir, really, the, the Peter Gabriel had been the progressive rock guy in the group. All three of the other guys were just kind of following the leader. All of their collective sensibilities leaned much more towards the pop side of things. And you can just hear with every album, they're just slowly moving in the direction of what Mike Rutherford, Tony Banks, and Phil Collins really are all about on a personal level musically. And I, I always love you know, straightforward pop is great. And I love straightforward pop. And we're going to be talking about quite a bit of it here today. But I always love when a band kind of like strains how far they can go outside of the pop box while still making something that is, you know, radio ready and, and totally accessible. 
And in this case, you have this band that over the course of the better part of a decade has been slowly bending towards making pop music. And, uh, you know, after this, Phil Collins' solo album is is off to the races. And then they make the, the very, very straightforward pop album, Invisible Touch. And then the one after that, the pretty terrible We Can't Dance. But here in 83, you could still hear the tension, and that's what makes this sort of so fun. Although in this particular track, um, all three of the members agreed that they were essentially doing their uh, their best homage to the Beatles. Phil Collins even trying to do kind of a Ringo Starr impression on the drums. The song just kind of got forgotten in the shuffle. This doesn't come up on the 80s nostalgia playlist very often, I don't think. But uh, I think it's a great song, and I'm willing to bet many of you agree with me. Meanwhile, fellow United Kingdom imports, Boy George and Culture Club would also sell 4 million albums of their second album, Colored by Numbers, which came out in October 83, containing uh, arguably their signature song. And this was this is the end of the run for Culture Club. By the time the first album was massive and has Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? And this one is, is just as big and solidifies them as huge pop heavyweights, MTV darlings by the third album. Like you've never even heard of a song on the third album. It was just kind of over. And he has a lot of reasons for that. Maybe the band is fatigued from the record tour, record tour cycle. Maybe people have just gotten over the the cheap thrill of seeing a man cross-dressing on MTV and the culture was moving somewhere else. I think the band and particularly Boy George themselves would tell you that um, the real problem was heroin. <laughs> but uh, here in 83, we find them in absolute top form with uh, multiple successful singles, including this one right here. You string along, you string along. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, chameleon. You come and go, you come and go. Loving would be easy if your colors were like my dream. Red, gold, and green. Red, gold, and green. The 1980s, a low key, pretty big decade for. Harmonica, Harmonica prominently featured on that song right there and also on the Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson collaboration with which we started the show. Next up, selling 7 million copies ultimately here in the States, the debut album from Cyndi Lauper, She's So Unusual. And uh, Cyndi Lauper is not her debut album on a major label. It's her solo debut. She'd been in this band called Blue Angel out of New York from like the late 70s. And if I understand correctly like from the jump as soon as they were showcasing for labels people were saying behind her back and and to her face you're the talent you got to ditch these guys and go solo and to her credit she was very resistant to the idea but she put out an album with blue angel and it didn't go anywhere and i guess uh really having no other options she she went solo to terrific success <clears throat> you know it's funny 
obviously pop, you know, pop culture just loved Cindy Lauper and she was so MTV ready and she was so radio ready. And then there was that whole crazy rock and wrestling connection collaboration thing with the WWF, which ended up spiraling into uh, the, the Saturday morning cartoon. She really was ubiquitous for a couple of years there, but I, I hear, I wasn't very aware of it at the time, but there was this sense of, uh, you know, her versus Madonna. They both had similar styles. They appealed to similar, similar demographics. They were both out of New York kind of who's going to be the, the, there can only be one who's going to be the Highlander of that particular vibe, that particular lane. And it seemed silly looking back because Madonna was just so gigantic and Cyndi Lauper never really replicated the success of this album. But, you know, I, I remembered it as being, no offense to Cyndi Lauper, I'm, a, I'm actually a huge fan, but, you know, sort of like Johnny Depp versus Richard Greco on 21 Jump Street at a certain point, one person just, uh, just drank the other one's milkshake. But you do forget how successful this album actually was. As I said, 7 million copies and more to the point, like just how many singles there were. I actually listened through most of this album the other, the other night. There's, there's five songs that you would absolutely remember that were big, big hit songs from this album. There was a sixth single, When You Were Mine. That's actually a very good song that Prince wrote, but it didn't really do any damage on the charts. And that's not counting now a song that Cindy has largely disowned. It's one of my favorites from her. It was included as a bonus track in some editions. The song um, uh, Good Enough or Goonies Are Good Enough. It was the theme song from, from the Goonies. She hates it. I don't know why. I think it's awesome. I think it's, it's probably actually my favorite song by her. But did Madonna ever have an album that had six hit songs on it? That's a pretty tall order. I'm not sure that she did. So yeah, for a minute in time there, not only were um, Cindy Lauper and Madonna head to head for pop supremacy. I think at a moment in time, you definitely could have made the case that Cindy Lauper was was winning. Of course, there's no doubt that I I just kind of prefer her vibe to Madonna's. I like her style. She just like the. I feel like I I, I like the person. If, if, if you know if if, I, if I'm picking up Cindy Lauper's uh, vibe correctly, I just think she's a really really cool chick. Um, there's no doubt she's a, a wildly superior singer to Madonna. Just um, classically powerful voice and also just it's not for everybody but a super unique style to boot and uh, this album featured as i mentioned five to six hit songs including her signature Yet, outselling Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson, John Cougar Bellencamp, Genesis, Culture Club, and Cyndi Lauper also released in October of 1983, an album that would ultimately be certified diamond for 10 million copies sold here in the States, an album that was and has been described as sort of a mini thriller, a poor man's thriller. Of course, anything thriller is uh, is, is not damning with faint praise. It's, it's a, a massive compliment in its own right. I'm speaking of the solo debut from, can you even guess who it is? Lionel Richie. Like, have we forgotten how gigantic this man was at the time? I think a lot of times there's the um, the the stars who 
like have a really, really distinctive image. I wouldn't say necessarily they feel like they mean something, but they're just these 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 landmarks in the culture. You know, Cindy Lauper really kind of was one if you were a kid, at least in the eighties. Boy George really was one. What's the 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 Arnold Schwarzenegger movie where he's like making fun of that man looks like a girl? You know, it's just these these people pop. They were they were something that were talked about in the culture. Whereas Lionel Richie, there wasn't anything all that exciting about the dude to look at. He was just a guy with like a must stash and a bunch of sweaters this is the golden age of pop stars wearing sweaters for sure um but he delivered like hit after hit and to the tune of 10 million copies sold and there's a bunch of songs you would remember successful singles from the album can't slow down most prominent of all this one right here It was a simpler time when an Alabama-born singer could temporarily adopt a Jamaican accent for a gigantic hit song, and nobody said boo. Nobody even noticed it was happening. Elsewhere, in October of 1983, Night Ranger released what would be their biggest album. This album sold a million copies. These guys sort of found themselves in in no man's land in the metal landscape, although in retrospect, they were probably just ahead of their time. They were perceived as being um, a little too wimpy, a little too chick friendly for the heavy metal crowd, which at this point was, uh, you know, is and always has been predominantly male. Of course, within four or five years, crossing over and appealing to uh, the female audience was the name of the game as bands like Warrant, Skid Row, etc. Um, had mainstream success with, you know, chick-friendly power ballads. And it is a girl-friendly power ballad that is the signature song, the biggest hit from Night Ranger's second album, Midnight Madness. The drummer of the band had spent some time uh, visiting his family. He noticed how much his sister... Christy was growing up and wrote a song about it. He's he's behind he's the drummer and he's he's singing it in rehearsal. I don't know if you've ever been in a rehearsal room. It's very noisy. The cymbals are incredible, incredibly loud. There's a reason why most guys in rock bands are at least somewhat deaf. And the rest of the band, he's singing Sister Christy. The rest of the band assumes he's singing Sister Christian. Once they all put their heads together on that and reconcile the mistake, they realize what they've been mishearing is much cooler than the original working title and a song that at the very, very least would be the the, the pivotal component of perhaps the pivotal scene of the movie Boogie Nights is born.
And with that, we have come to the end of the albums that sold a million copies, which were released in October of 1983, and indeed, in rather dramatic fashion. There's three more albums I want to talk to you about. I would be willing to wager that the three of them combined did not move one million units, at least in the first decade plus of their existence. And yet, um, I'm pretty excited to share each of them with you first and, uh, I guess, foremost, the debut album from Danish metal act Merciful Fate, which I'm willing to bet that there are some people for whom that name doesn't even ring a bell. Um, For many other people, that band needs absolutely no introduction, nor does their legendary, infamous lead singer, King Diamond. If you know the name King Diamond, now you're like, oh, we're talking about that. If you don't, do yourself a favor. If you're not like currently driving, just Google the man, find a picture of the man and oh, okay, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about some of the absolute godfathers of thrash metal, extreme metal, black metal. When you think of Scandinavian dudes standing outside of like a a, a burned down church holding upside down crosses with their faces painted, it all comes back to this band and this man, King Diamond. And it's not for everybody. I'll tell you what, I have always personally, this is a weird analogy. Hear me out here. I have always thought of King Diamond as the Morrissey of metal. There are lots of people who love, you know, UK indie rock from the 80s and they love the Smiths and that's totally fine. That's totally normal. And then there are some people who love that stuff who just cannot deal with the Smiths, cannot deal with Marzi and and you just totally get it. And in large part, it comes down to the voice. It's just this very, very singular, very dramatic thing that they have committed to. And, you know, if, if you like, you know, The Cure and Depeche Mode and I play you New Order. And you're like, man, I, I just don't get it. I don't like it at all. Like, I, I'm like, really? You don't? Why? If I play you the Smiths and you're like, this is not for me, I'm just like, say no more. Say no more. You don't need to explain it. It's just, it, it either appeals to you, it speaks to you, or it doesn't. It is very much the case with King Diamond. But, um, but, but, but Morrissey works for me, and so does Merciful Fate. And um, if their first album is, I, I don't go super deep on them. I'm not going to pretend that I do. But I know what I like. And if the first album isn't the best album, I'd be surprised. And in my opinion, the best song is the first song. And just if you've never heard this before, you are in for a treat. Um, Love it, hate it, laugh at it, whatever. Here is um, the song Evil from from King Diamond in Merciful Fate, released in October of 83. Next up, an album that peaked at number 51 on the UK charts, did not crack the top 200 here in the States. It's a band many people still have never heard of, but screw it, man. It's my show. I do what I want. We're going to talk about Cocteau Twins and their second album, Head Over Heels. This is one of my all-time favorite bands. I, it's taken a long time, but I 
unmistakably hear a strong influence of what they did way back in the early 80s into the early 90s. Um, I would say not trickling, flooding into what's happening in mainstream indie rock. It has been that way for a while. But way back when, they were this fledgling act on super cool UK indie label uh, 4AD. And in the very beginning, they did these very like ethereal soundscapes. By the end, they were doing something sort of recognizably uh, like pop song structures. But it was always weird. It was always inaccessible. There's always these big lush guitars and keyboards and um, the vocalist, Elizabeth Fraser, decided pretty early on, rather than writing um, decipherable lyrics to essentially, she'd mix in words and stuff, but for the most part, she just did this this made-up gobbledygook nonsense um, babble language that kind of sounded like it meant everything and nothing at the same time. And uh, it's just a weird, weird stew that uh, that somehow really, really worked. She's one of the most talented vocalists I've ever heard. I, like, don't sleep on this woman being... Like when you talk about the great female vocalists in music, the great vocalists in music, like nobody's going to bring her name up, but she absolutely belongs in the conversation. She really is that talented as a singer and as a melody writer. And as I said, they they would sort of go back and forth in the early days between doing stuff that that was sort of plotless, that just sounded nice, but wasn't really a, a song. It was more of an atmosphere. Um, and, and and but here is one of the the early landmark moments where they put it together into like a recognizable song, and it's it is a, a recognizably great song. I dare you to disagree with me. Cocteau Twins and Sugar Hiccup. Before we wrap things up here and I send you on your way, let me remind you, you can get a free seven-day trial at my Patreon here, the best of the rest of October of 1983. What was Bob Dylan doing in 1983? Don't you kind of want to know what was Eddie Money doing? What were Survivor doing? What were the dregs of the Cro-Magnon Cretan Metal Underground doing in October of 1983? Also, I, I seriously think I may have found another hidden gem in a band called uh, China Crisis. All of that is waiting for you with a free trial, uh, along with the hundreds of other shows also there at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Pretty easy to remember. But uh, lastly, sadly, really tragically, the final release from the Carpenters, who were, um, uh, we, you know, we associate them strongly with the 70s, but the last album did come out in 83. And sadly, this was a posthumous release, at least for the, the singer and front woman, Karen Carpenter. You may or may not know the story. Nowadays, it's just so commonplace. I don't remember a world where we weren't aware of um, eating disorders and the, the the dangers of eating eating disorders, but it just wasn't a thing that was talked about, I guess, back then. And Karen Carpenter essentially died from anorexia. I mean, technically she had a heart attack, but it was brought on from, from complications. And um, 
they had started to work on an album and she's in and out of the hospital and she it's so sad uh, i mean the music is not my cup of tea it's neither here nor there but it's one of these things where the fact that their music was so saccharine sweet just becomes uh takes on this whole other tinge because you know what was going on behind the scenes and what her ultimate fate was going to be so she gets out of the the hospital and goes to the studio to work on this new album and in one take she records this song and then uh, she ends up going back in the hospital and she dies and they they put out an album of a bunch of leftovers from previous albums and uh, the two new songs including her final moment in a recording studio it's it's really sad and it's really lame but here it is I, i hate to leave you with this but here are the carpenters in a song called now thanks folks we'll do this again it is my vow in one week now now when it rains i don't feel cold now that i have your hand to hold the winds might blow through me but i don't care there's 